again. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so good to be back with you all. And how wonderful was it to have Pastor Ben and Pastor Rob teaching over the last two weeks? So, yeah. Really thankful for the uh, elders that God has called and commissioned to lead this church. And these are my best friends, and I love doing ministry with my friends, and uh, just really thankful for them. Um, we're continuing on in the Gospel of Mark this morning, uh, which, guess what? We are set to finish the Gospel of Mark in the first week of September. So really exciting. We started this book when the church started on September 27th, which means September 27th will mark a one-year celebration as a church. We're going to have a, we're going to throw a little party here. Um, but after we finish Mark, one thing uh, we've been praying about doing, we're going we're gonna to roll into is a four-week vision series, uh, just so you know what we're about here at Calvary Chapel Palace Verde. So typically we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible, and uh, that's what you're going to get. That's our bread and butter, but we're going to have a vision series, and we're going to have a party. Does that sound good? All right, cool. Well, Knox is in the house today, right back there, and Leah, doing wonderful. If you get a chance to go meet him. Also in the house today are um, my mother and father-in-law, Gary and Mary Lou Sander, who have been, uh, yeah, they have been missionaries in Colombia since 1990, and I've uh, been so faithfully serving them there. And uh, my mom and stepdad are here, so the whole family's here, guys. Um, but it's wonderful because we have the family of God here, and we're so thankful. Also, if you're watching online, we welcome you, and thank you for joining us uh, there. But let's get into the Word. Mark chapter 15, you can open up your Bible, um, whether that's a physical copy or turn your device on at this point. And uh, we're also going to have the verses up on the screen. But as we continue on in the Gospel of Mark, we're in chapter 15 and this is where we're at. We're in the midst of the most significant events in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so far in the Gospels, we have seen that Jesus had a teaching and a preaching ministry. We've seen that Jesus had a miracle-working ministry. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we have seen how he heals people of various sicknesses and diseases. He, he fed people, the multitudes. He cared for the poor. He delivered people from demonic spirits. He went about um, releasing and, and satisfying those who were marginalized and oppressed. And we've seen these amazing testimonies as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, as we've studied our way through. But as we come to this point in the Gospel, we're coming to the culminating mark, the culminating point that fulfills and brings all of that to its head which is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. See, if the ministry of Jesus stopped at good teaching, he would be no different than a philosopher and a public speaker. If the ministry of Jesus stopped at his miracles, he would be no different than a doctor or a therapist or a social worker. If the ministry of Jesus... Uh, didn't extend beyond just these good works and these good teachings, we would still be dead in our sins. You see, to have the cross and to have the empty tomb means that we have been reconciled to God, and there is no good news apart from the realities of the cross and the tomb. Amen? 
Amen. So where we're at in this portion of the gospel is so, it's so important. It defines and it shapes what we do here. You know, Paul says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, what we're doing right now would be no different than a social club. And it's like, why would you waste your Sunday doing this? But if truly Christ died and was risen, what we're doing right now on this Sunday morning, gathering before the word of God, has eternal meaning and significance. So this isn't just a social club gathering. This is the blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ, and that's why we gather. Amen? Amen. So as we look into God's word today, we are going to see the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and hopefully that today you will either be newly informed or freshly reminded about who Jesus is and what he came to do when he came to this earth and how by believing in the death and the resurrection of Christ, it saves us from the eternal consequences of sin. So that's what we're looking at today. So look in your Bible now, Mark chapter 15. We're going to pick it up now at verse 1. It says, As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So we see first here that the time of day was early in the morning. Jesus had already had quite the night as he had appeared uh, to the house. Well, well, first it kind of starts off, right, where he has a dinner with his disciples. Then he goes to a garden where he's then arrested. He's betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. He's denied by Peter. And now he has been on a legal trial at the house of Annas and Caiaphas, who were the chief priests of the elders. And now Jesus has had this night where he was blindfolded and punched in the face. He was mocked and he was ridiculed. He was accused of blasphemy. And now he's taken from that place and he's going to be handed over now to the civil authorities. The religious authorities have already had their time with Jesus, but now they're taking him to the civil authorities. And these various groups of religious authorities who prior to Jesus were all in opposition to one another. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, none of them could agree together, but they all agreed against Jesus. And they wanted to see Jesus out of the way. And they knew that although they had accused Jesus of blasphemy, and it, it was only an accusation, right, because if Jesus were not God, the Son, the Son of God, then his claims would be blasphemy. But if he's God, then it's not blasphemy. Yet they saw Jesus as a blasphemer, but they knew that before the civil authorities, this would not be enough to have Jesus sentenced. I mean, think about it. They take Jesus and say, this man is a blasphemer. But you're talking to pagan Romans who have hundreds of gods. So what difference is it if this man claims to be God? So they kind of go back to the drawing board. They consult with one another and they want to figure out, you know, how they're going to have Jesus killed. The question is, well, why didn't the religious leaders just kill Jesus themselves? Why are they passing him off to, to Pilate, to the, to the Romans? 
Well, let me remind you that the Jews at this time lacked any real power or authority. They had been ruled and oppressed by the Romans. They had been stripped of of their legal system, which means that if they ever wanted to sentence somebody to capital punishment, they had to go through the Romans. They had sort of these puppets of of leaders within the Jewish um, religion, but um, they were powerless when it came to executing any sort of law. That's why they were having an illegal trial in the middle of the night. But can I suggest another reason to you guys why Jesus was passed from the religious authorities to the civil authorities? Because God ordained it. And if you think about this, God ordained that Jesus would die at the hands of both Jews and Gentiles. God ordained that there wouldn't be one person or one people group who would singularly be blamed for the death of Jesus. God wanted it that the Jews and the Gentiles killed Jesus, that the religious and the civil authorities killed Jesus, the disciples and the enemies killed Jesus. And guys, if I could say so directly, you killed Jesus. I killed Jesus. No one can step back and say, I have no responsibility in the matter. Even though we'll see that Pilate will try to do that, we all in some way have a responsibility in the death of Christ. And this is why. God ordained that we would all have a hand of responsibility in the death of Jesus so that we might all benefit from his death. So Jesus has passed in the early morning from the religious leaders. Now he's going, and it says that he's bound and delivered to Pilate. You know, I find it interesting that they bound Jesus, like he was some kind of threat, you know. Here's the guy who's healing ears that are getting chopped off and and telling his disciples to live at peace and not by the sword. You know, Rob said that they, there were upwards to 600 soldiers who came to arrest Jesus. They were trying to bind the most peaceful man on earth. But the reason why they bound him, I think, is because they feared his spiritual authority and power. You know, they didn't want one of those I am moments to happen again, where Jesus would just speak a word and everyone would fall down to the ground. And isn't it true today that many people try to bind Jesus, right? For fear, people try to bind Jesus because what would happen if his authority and his power were to be manifest in the world? And the disciples of Jesus, we know in the book of Acts, would later also be bound for the sake of Christ. We're told that the disciples As they were speaking the name of Jesus, the whole world was turning upside down. And the governing authorities came together and counseled together and said, what should we do? And they they arrested and they beat them and they said, do not speak the name of Jesus anymore. What did they do? They kept speaking the name of Jesus. Because you see, if either Jesus or the people of God are bound we can say with the Apostle Paul, who for a lot of his ministry was 
under arrest, he was bound, he was able to say, though I am in chains, the gospel is not chained. You have to realize this, you guys. We have to realize this, that Jesus can be bound. Jesus' people can be bound. People can try to silence the name of Jesus, but the gospel cannot be bound. The word of God cannot be detained, and it will go out with great power, and it will go out in great authority to change the world as long as we're opening our mouth boldly to speak. Amen? Amen. So Jesus was bound early in the morning. He was taken to the Praetorium, which was the headquarters of Pilate. And Pilate was a prefect. He was a Roman official, and he was put in charge of the region of Judea. Pilate was, according to history, he was kind of a brutal man, and he was really suspicious of the Jewish people. He was responsible at this time for keeping things under control because, as you know, this is the time of Passover, a time when upwards to three million Jewish people would flood into Jerusalem to celebrate the freedom and the victory that they had uh, of being released from Egypt. This was a big work week for Pilate. Pilate was uh, in charge of crowd control, keeping any sort of rebellions, any sort of pressures that the religious people would bring upon the political people. And so he is here being summoned very early in the morning by the religious leaders. And Pilate's probably thinking, oh my goodness, what do they have now? They're coming to him to present a matter on the week of Passover. They hand Jesus over and they tell him to try Jesus. And the accusations that they bring Jesus as they hand him over to Pilate is that he has committed treason. So look in verse 2, it says, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. We gather from the other gospel accounts that the religious leaders understood that, you know, they didn't have a real case against Jesus, just on the uh, basis of blasphemy. So what do they do? They hire some people, say, you bring this accusation, you bring that accusation, we'll bring this one, we'll try to find something to stick on Jesus. But as we learned last week in Benka's message, which I so love, is that conspiracy just never works. The lie gets found out so quickly. They couldn't, their, 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 their stories were not aligning. And so here they are. And, and they're trying to accuse Jesus of treason, of coming against Rome and trying to set up a rebellion, trying to set up a different kingdom. And listen, when that happened, this was dealt with very harshly by the Romans. Because the whole point was to keep Caesar as Caesar, to keep him at the top. Don't let anyone come close to having any kind of authority like Caesar has. I mean, this is, guys, this is what crosses were for. Do you know that crosses were essentially shocking billboards that lined the streets of Jerusalem that basically sent this message? This is what happens to you if you mess with Rome. That's what crosses were for. You mess with Rome, you will hang on a cross. It was a billboard to the Jewish people. And here they are, bringing Jesus, 
accusing him of treason. So Pilate gets in Jesus' face and he says, are you the king of the Jews? I love how Jesus answers so brilliantly, so tactfully. He says, you have said so. (laughs) You know, Jesus had a way of saying things without saying things. And here he is. I mean, in John's gospel, it gives us a fuller picture of how he went about this. Chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus is with Pilate talking about how he is the king of the Jews. And he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting so that, you, so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Pilate said, so are you the king then? And Jesus said, you say I am a king. Now, something just to learn right here. As citizens of the kingdom of God, if you're a Christian, this is something to learn right now about the kingdom of Jesus. Just from that statement in John's gospel. First fact, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom, not of this world not of this earth, not of flesh and blood. Second, the kingdom of God was both formed and will not be expanded with fighting. It was not formed and it will not be expanded with fighting. Jesus will expand his kingdom how he wants to expand it and it's not of this world. So continuing on in verse three, we read the chief priests accused him of many things. They were so desperate to pin Jesus with something, anything that would get this man out of their lives. You know, when Jesus comes into your life and he kind of rubs up against the way that you're living and the way that you're thinking, um, you have one of two options. You can oppose that and try to push Jesus away, or you can receive that and accept Jesus. But you have to know that if Jesus is going to come into your life, if Jesus is, if his kingdom is going to come against your kingdom, there's going to be some conflict. Things are going to rub against each other, and you have a decision to make whether to submit or to reject. And the religious leaders decided to reject and push him away, hiring people to make accusations, denying him, and, and really ultimately um, sending him to Pilate to try to have him killed. And Pilate just seems to get caught in the crossfires of all this. He, he doesn't want anything to do this. He wants the Jewish people to just deal with their own matters. But here he is, verse 4 through 5, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? He's asking Jesus because he's saying, see how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate was used to men begging for their lives, knowing that within this man's authority, by a single word, you just had to say cross. And they all knew what was going to happen. And here Jesus, the innocent one, isn't saying anything to defend himself. He's sitting there hearing accusation after accusation come in an onslaught against him, and he's completely silent, almost in a just a way that made Pilate just feel kind of like, 
who is this guy? He was amazed. He was daunted by it. But Jesus was just fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 53, 7, you know this verse. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led to led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus, the suffering servant, the Messiah of the world, was silent and calm and resolute because he knew that he was standing in the Father's will. He'd already decided as he was on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. So he didn't need to speak because the Father had already spoken. He already knew what he needed to do. And if you think about that fact just for a moment, you can learn a great example from our Lord. You can learn because, guys, we know this living in this world. It's not uncommon for us to have things said about us. It's not uncommon for slanderous things to be spoken, where you feel like your name is just being dragged through the mud. Anybody ever had that happen to them? Okay, we've, we all know what it's like to live in the reality of that, and guess what? The church is not immune to it. It's the reality of where we live, where, where accusers will come against you and will even speak lies against you. But what did Jesus do? He was silent. He was confident in what the Father said about him. He was comfortable knowing what his character was. And if people tried to slanderously push over his character, it didn't matter because he knew what the Father had spoken of him. And in his own integrity, he knew how his character stood up. So we could learn something from our Lord. I I can't say this if you have bad character. But if you truly have good character and you have integrity and somebody says some sort of lie or some sort of false accusation against you, you can learn from your Lord Jesus and just stay silent. Amen? And like I said, Pilate was caught in the crossfires of all this. He wants to just wipe his hands of the matter. But, but his amazement is like getting the best of him. Who is this man Jesus? Why would these Jewish people want to sentence an innocent man to death? Because as, as Pilate was sort of examining the lamb before the slaughter, he found that he was without blemish. He found that there was nothing that could be put against him. Jesus was faultless. So what's Pilate going to do? How's he going to release Jesus, this innocent man who has no reason to stand before Pilate in this moment? We'll look at verses 6 through 8. This is when things get interesting. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So Pilate had sort of previously implemented this goodwill custom with the Jewish people. That during the time of Passover, we remember his job was crowd control keeping any sort of rebellion from stirring up. And so as a goodwill gesture to kind of keep the peace, he came up with this release a prisoner deal where the Jews would come during the week of Passover and Pilate would get to celebrate in the, in the freedom of Israel, releasing a prisoner during the time of Passover. 
and a crowd had gathered at the steps of the Praetorium, Pilate's headquarters, and they wanted this to cash in, you know, on the release of prisoner deal. And, and it seems from the text that there was probably a significant portion of that group that was gathered there that they were there for their friend Barabbas. We saw that Barabbas was a rebel, one who had been part of an insurrection, that he had murdered some people and he had stolen, uh, and so he'd been arrested by the Romans. And, and it seems that his buddies were coming out to sort of break him out of jail, use that get out of jail free card. And here they are, and the plan is, we've got this release a prisoner deal. This would be a perfect opportunity to release Jesus, the king of the Jews. In verse 9, he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And Pilate probably said that with a little bit of sarcasm. <laughs> you want your little king over here? You can have him. He wants to get on his in with his day. He, he, he doesn't want to deal with Jesus. We know from other gospels he sends him off to Herod and, and he, he just doesn't, he wants to wipe his hands clean of this whole thing. But verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. We got to pause for a second and just talk about envy for a moment because envy is what killed Jesus. And envy is one of the most dangerous hidden sins. It is like bitter poison that will kill you. I swear to you, I have found no better definition for envy than on Wikipedia. I don't find my doctrinal statements on Wikipedia, so don't worry. <clears throat> but listen, listen to this definition of envy on Wikipedia. Envy occurs when a person lacks another's superior quality, achievement, or possession and either desires it or wishes that the other lacked it. You know, a lot of times we think of envy as just wanting what somebody else has. There's a component about that. But envy is also stripping from others their superior qualities, achievements, and possessions just because you don't like seeing them have it. And the religious leaders see Jesus and they've seen the authority he had. They saw the power and the miracles and the teachings that was so much better than theirs because it came from God. And it wasn't muddled with hypocrisy and traditions of men. You know, a lot of times when Christians see the real deal, you have a decision to make. You can follow the real deal or out of envy, you can resist the real deal and keep living your sort of fake Christianity. So out of envy, they kill Jesus. But the chief priests, as they harbored the envy, what they were really doing is that they were conspiring with demons. Because the most envious person there is, is the devil. Because in James, we read that envy is earthly, sensual, and demonic. And where there's envy, there's every kind of evil thing, including murder. And so they want to kill Jesus because they hate his love. They hate that he's the real deal. And they want to continue to live in their wicked ways. As the mirror of Jesus' love is held up in front of them and they're seeing their reflection and they're not liking what they're seeing in themselves, what do you do? You can either change to look more like Jesus or you can break the mirror. Get rid of Jesus allowing to be the one who really shows me who I'm really, 
who I really am. And so, verse 11, the chief priests stirred the crowd to have him release Barabbas instead. And the crowd already wanted Barabbas. But the religious leaders just kind of go about and they, they rouse the crowd to get them to release Barabbas, who was a murderer and a thief, instead of Jesus, the giver of life. Verse 12, somewhat surprised by their choice, Pilate says to the crowd, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Verse 13, they cried out again, crucify him. (laughs) I think we got to slow down on those words right there. We've already gotten a lot out of this message, I think, but we got to stop at verse 13. You know, you and I, we, we got to sit on those words. Crucify him. You know, crucify him. Sentence Jesus, the innocent man, and give him the criminal, criminal's death. You know, do it, Pilate. Take this man, who you clearly see as undeserving of death, and kill him. And give us that man who deserves to hang upon a cross for his ploy and the insurrection. Give us that guy. You take the innocent man and crucify him. Verse 14, Pilate said to them, Why? (laughs) What evil has he done? Right? Like, ding, 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 you got it, Pilate. (laughs) Pilate just made, like, the most accurate theological statement about Jesus right there. Why? What evil has he done? None. This is Jesus. They're asking to crucify the innocent one. They're demanding to kill the righteous one. They want to snuff out the light of the world. They want to silence the Holy One. They do not want Jesus because they envy him and they want him dead and they would rather have Barabbas. And so they shouted all the more, crucify him. Finally, in verse 15, we see what Pilate chooses to do. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, which is always a really bad idea. Release for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You know, as we continue on in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to continue to look at the death of Jesus on the cross. We're stopping here at verse 15, because we've already seen a lot, we've already learned a lot, that you get to now take out And not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And as the mirror of God's word, as the mirror of Jesus' love has been put on display before you, you have to sort of look in the mirror and say, who do I most resemble in this story? You know, first off, let's just let Jesus be Jesus in this story, right? I'm just sorry to break to you, but you're not Jesus in the story. (laughs) Okay. We might be like the disciples. Like, wait, hold on, the disciples weren't in this story. That's right. Where were they? 
They were cowering away in fear. The one who they walked with, who learned from, who got to participate in all the powerful displays of Jesus' power in this critical hour when they should have been standing with Jesus, they were cowering away in fear. We live in a critical hour. I hope you know that. We live in an hour when the cross of Christ needs to be boldly declared. And we ought not to be disciples who are cowering away in fear, whether because of religious pressures or civil pressures. You know, the disciples would change. They would be bound just like Jesus would be bound. According to tradition, Peter himself would end up like he said he wanted to be with Jesus. He would be crucified, but when he got crucified, according to tradition, it says that he didn't want to die the same death as the Lord, so they had him crucify him upside down. Peter was a changed man, but what changed the disciples? What changed them? Right now, they're cowering away in fear. What changed them? Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, go and read it. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is what changed the disciples from cowering away in fear to being bold and fruitful, effective witness for Jesus Christ in the world. And if you find yourself like the disciples, where because of religious or civil pressures, you have sort of shrunk in, you need the baptism with the Holy Spirit to open you up to be a bold witness for Christ. Amen? Amen. Listen, foundationally, that's how this church started, was the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Foundationally, many of you know the story, but foundationally, this church started because the Holy Spirit was poured out upon us to be bold witnesses for Jesus. Let's continue to be that church, amen? Amen. Ooh, that was spirit-led, because that wasn't in my notes. Okay, then there's the religious leaders who they we know we don't want to be like the religious leaders who when Jesus presses up against your life, you push him away. Look, when Jesus comes into your life, things are going to get messed up. You're not going to be able to keep living the way that you've been living because Jesus changes and transforms lives. And you can either choose to accept Jesus or you can choose to reject Jesus. Jesus said you are either for me or you are against me. And listen, to be undecided about Jesus is to be decided against Jesus. There's no sort of middle ground where you can be undecided about him. You either decide for him or you decide against him. And Jesus has put his love and grace on display for you today so that you can receive him. Repent of your hypocrisy. Repent of your empty man-made traditions and start living according to the scriptures by the power of God and not just messing around with empty religion because messing around with empty religion is what got Jesus killed and then there's the crowd and the crowd reminds me how people often choose sin over Jesus we are like the crowd who foolishly choose Barabbas we so foolishly often choose sin that thing and those things that steal kill and destroy we'd rather have the guilty rather than the innocent one and then listen if there's anyone that we all are most like 
we are almost like Barabbas. Barabbas means son of the father. Barabbas was just another son of Adam. Just another sinner who had stolen and murdered and rebelled and was deserving of death for it. He deserved the cross that day. On Golgotha, there were three crosses that were reserved for three criminals, but God loved Barabbas. And that while he was still sinning, Christ died in his place. Jesus took Barabbas' place of sin and death so that Barabbas could take Jesus' place of life and freedom. God treated Barabbas as he should have treated Jesus. What God would treat Jesus as Barabbas should have been treated, right? So that Barabbas could be treated like Jesus, an innocent and a free man. Guys, Barabbas is a vivid picture of a sinner reconciled to God through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. This is the most beautiful picture of Jesus being a substitute for sinners. They swap places. A great exchange happened. Jesus stood in the place of a sinner so that Barabbas could stand in the place of a righteous man. This is the gospel. Go read Romans. It's all in there. And Jesus was scourged. His flesh was whipped open. He was delivered to be crucified. In the coming weeks, we're going to continue to see more about the death of Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel. Christ and him crucified is what turns the world upside down. But let me simply declare this as we end here this morning, is that you have sinned. Every last one of us, I have sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. But the free gift of God in Christ is eternal life. God offered Jesus on the cross to release you so that when you repent of your sin, when you believe and trust in the death of Jesus, God pardons you for freedom and forgiveness. We are like Barabbas. And today we can turn from being just another son of Adam, a sinner, and we can come to a heavenly father today through Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, that we get to be born again into a new family where we get to stand in the place of the righteous one, of the innocent one. So the Father says over you what he has always said over his own son. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for this wonderful testimony of your life and your death and we know Lord that the resurrection comes three days after your death Lord and we who gather here today those of us who are your church who have been born again to a living hope God we stand upon these promises we stand upon these declarations and we say Lord um, use us to testify about it Use us to see a lost and dying world come to know this good news. And Lord, if there has been in our midst this morning 
anyone here who is hearing this good news for the first time, and they would love to make that choice today of saying, uh, I want to be released, I want to be forgiven, I am Barabbas, but I want to stand in Jesus. And if, if you sense that today the gospel has been spoken right to your heart and you have yet to receive Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, and as your friend, would you just raise your hand as, as everybody is here just praying right now? If you're a believer, be praying that the Holy Spirit would allow people today to confess Christ. And if that's you and you want to pray to receive Jesus today, just raise your hand so we can know to pray for you and walk with you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. God, I ask, Lord, for this church fall afresh upon us. Holy Spirit, come upon your disciples. For any disciples who have been here, who have been sort of shrunken in on fear, God, I pray, Lord, that you would come upon them. A power that would not be their own would magnify the name of Christ throughout this world through them. We pray it in Jesus' name.